So, um, church, this is our time of digging into Scripture together, obviously. That's what the sermon is all about. And since June, we've been studying the Gospel of Luke. Um, But you may have had this feeling all along, like you started watching this great thriller TV show, but you missed the first episode. And there's a reason you've had that feeling. You've had that feeling, right? Yeah, you've been like, what? What are these references? Uh, uh, Well, we skipped on purpose chapters one and two so that when we got to today, we could circle back and connect all of the dots. So you're going to have probably just an, an overwhelming experience of joy as you're connecting dots Why aren't you laughing? Um, Anyway, (laughs) brothers and sisters, let's turn to Luke chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 5 to 25. We did look at the first four verses back in June, so we'll start in verse 5. During the reign of Herod, king of Judea, there lived a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. And he had a wife named Elizabeth, who was a descendant of Aaron. They were both righteous in the sight of God, following all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blamelessly. But they did not have a child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both very old. Now, while Zechariah was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, He was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to enter the holy place of the Lord and burn incense. Now the whole crowd of people were praying outside at the hour of the incense offering. An angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense, appeared to him. And Zechariah, visibly shaken when he saw the angel, was seized with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You will name him John. Joy and gladness will come to you, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He must never drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth. He will turn many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go as forerunner before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared for him. Zechariah said to the angel, how can I be sure of this? For I am an old man, and my wife is old as well. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And now, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time, you will be silent, unable to speak until the day these things take place. Now the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they began to wonder why he was delayed in the holy place. When he came out, he was not able to speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the holy place because he was making signs to them and remained unable to speak. When his time of service was over, he went to his home. After some time, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant, and for five months, she kept herself in seclusion. She said, this is what the Lord has done for me at the time when he has been gracious to me, to take away my disgrace among people. 
This is the word of the Lord. Lord, in this moment of silence, would you speak to us about your word? Lord, thank you for um, the traditions of the church that remind us to get ready. Lord, the traditions, uh, the, the centuries-old traditions that remind us that some stories are so big that we should take weeks, months to prepare ourselves for them. And so, Lord, at the beginning of this season of Advent 2023, I ask, Lord, that you would start doing a work in each of our hearts, Lord, sensitize us and tenderize us to the ways that you're moving. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, uh, church, sometimes, once in a while, things happen that are unmistakably supernatural. Say, for example, you're burning incense and an angel shows up and strikes you mute. Um, You know, it's hard to miss. A big supernatural thing has happened. But most of the time, as we go about our daily lives, as we go about the ordinary, you know, vicissitudes of life, the humdrum of the normal world that we're living in, we can feel a bit disconnected from God's activity. What is he doing? How is he moving? Perhaps one of the key elements of faith, maybe the experience that we associate the most with faith, is being able to observe God at work in normal life. Being able to notice when and how God is moving. Um, Some of you call these God sightings. This is a, a type of vision that takes... Um, cultivation. Like any, like any um, uh, skilled vision, it, it takes work. You know, someone who is a, uh, an art critic, someone who has studied art for, you know, went to school, studied great works of art, knows how to look for different uh, brush patterns and different symbols and different styles from different periods. They can look at a piece of art, a, a painting, and see things that that I would never be able to see on my own. They've developed a vision for it. And I think we have an opportunity to develop a vision to be able to see God at work. And I think that's actually what Luke is trying to do in his gospel in total, but also in the beginning. We skipped the first few verses, but in those verses, he uh, introduces this gospel. He says he's writing this whole orderly account for a man named Theophilus. Theophilus was probably a Roman official, probably a a government official, a man of means, and he was at least, in, in in a friendly way, curious about the Jesus movement. He, he's, he's heard enough, he's seen enough, he wants to understand what, what is this all about. But he's a Gentile, it doesn't quite get all of the Jewish references, and so he hires another Gentile, Luke, to pull the story together. Luke turns out to be very connected to the Christian community. He traveled with Paul, he has uh, clear connections to Peter, he, he's deeply connected, and he has Luke Uh, compile all of the evidence into an orderly account. But so Luke does that, but Luke makes his intentions plain. He doesn't want to just give the facts to, um, to Theophilus. 
He wants Theophilus to be sure, to be convinced of the things that he has heard. In other words, he wants Theophilus to begin to believe that all of these stories are God at work, God moving. Be certain of the things that you are taught. In other words, Luke is sharpening Theophilus's vision, tuning his ears so that he can see and hear God at work. And I think in this opening scene, we, we get to kind of uh, uh, set our minds, set our hearts to, to the ways that we're going to notice God moving throughout really the whole of Luke's gospel. We're going to see this in a few different ways. We're going to see it in, in incredibly expected ways. We're going to see God at work in the big story, sort of the big story of his people, the big story of, of the scriptures. We're going to see God at work in um, Zechariah and Elizabeth's devotion in their, in their commitment to God, their obedience. Those are the expected ways. That's like, yeah, of course, uh, pastor, uh, read your Bible and pray. That's basically what you're saying for how you can develop a vision. Yes, that is what I'm saying. But we're also going to see God at work in unexpected ways. We're going to see God at work in pain, in people's pain. We're going to see God at work in reactions to his works that are not so good. We're going to see him moving when we miss it, when we, when we biff it after he does something. That's how we're going to see God at work. So we're going to see him in the big story, in our devotion, in our pain, and even in our poor responses. So, okay, the first two are the places you might expect to be able to see God working. God is working, one, in the big story. He's working in the big story. This scene that we just read with Zechariah is loaded with hyperlinks to the big story. It is overwhelming when you start looking for it nearly every scene every image everything that happens is connecting through symbols and words and people to a much bigger story uh, for example the heritage of Zechariah and Elizabeth Zechariah is in the priestly line of Abijah that's a descendant of Aaron and Elizabeth his wife is also a descendant of Aaron who's Aaron Aaron is Moses's brother the first priest and so they are like pure priestly line i mean they they and therefore if they were ever somehow able to have a child their child would be like uber priest he would be just pure i mean like priest squared i mean he, is, he, he will be someone set up for big things. So their families are a tie into the big story. By, just by listing the Abijah and Aaron, Luke is jumping first a thousand years back to when, the, you know, when King David is assembling the priests to serve in the temple. And the, you know, you, it's, it's right there, I'm sure you recall, in First Chronicles 24, where we see that the eighth lot falls to Abijah and his, you know, and his descendants and that they would serve in that rotation in the temple, right? You know, yeah, totally, yeah, totally. So, yeah, so that's a thousand years back when David's doing that. And then 
by calling out Aaron, we're going a thousand years back before that to the story of the Exodus. So even in their names, there's a big tie to the big story. These people obeying these laws, offering these prayers, are carrying forward an ancient story that has survived by pure miracle alone. Why are there still priests worshiping in the temple? Friends, that is crazy. I mean, just we need to review the story of Israel a little bit. I mean, these people, they are an unlikely people anyway. They were slaves in Egypt. They had an unlikely deliverance from Egypt. They had an unlikely conquest of the land that was promised to them. They were there. They, they established, you know, a decently stable kingdom for about 100 years. <laughs> and then things start falling apart. And, and eventually, you know, a few hundred years after that, they're, they're overrun and they're sent into exile. You know, Assyria swoops in, Babylon swoops in. Then Babylon is overtaken, not by Israel, no, but by Persia. And they're overtaken by Greece and they're overtaken by the Romans. And, and with that many layers of conquerors, who rule over them, this little weak people group should have dissolved. It should have just blended into the big story. There's, it's, it's insane that they have kept going. It's also insane that they have been so diligent to keep going. They've got all of these promises that they're holding on to, and, and a long time has passed. I mean, all of these promises are about how there will always be a king in the line of David on the throne. But at this point in Luke chapter 1, nearly 600 years have passed since a king in the line of David was on any sort of throne. It's amazing that they're still holding on to it. During the season of Advent, I often find myself drifting uh, to Psalm 89. And, and if you ever want to just feel just depressed, go read Psalm 89. Psalm 89, it's, it's 37 verses of just elation about the glorious uh, promises to David. And, and it's, you know, it's putting, it's you know, God speaking first person, you know, I will never give up on David. I'll never let him go. I'll never let him down. You know, these promises are going to last forever. And then verse 38 comes and it's like, Night has fallen, you know, all of a sudden, but you have abandoned David. You have just crushed him into the ground. You gave up on your promises. I mean, so they're holding on to that. They're holding on to that big story. And over all this time, they didn't just say, forget it, forget it, I'm out. No, there's still a priest offering sacrifices in the temple. There's so much more in this. The, the, the big story here, I mean, Gabriel shows up and he's, he introduces himself as Gabriel. Well, uh, about a thousand years before this, or not quite, maybe more like uh, 500 years before this, sorry. Uh, there's this scene in Persia and there's this guy, Daniel, and he's standing in his room praying and burning incense. And Gabriel shows up. 
And what is he praying for? For the restoration of his people. So here is Zechariah burning incense, and Gabriel shows up saying, your prayers have been answered. There's all these connections all over this passage. Uh, uh, Zechariah's uh, position was chosen by Lot. The fact that he gets to do this, there was, it's sort of like rolling dice. They cast lots. That's the way to say, God, you're in charge of who gets to do this at this time. Well, that's how Abijah's group got to be eighth in the rotation. So the family was chosen by Lot. Zechariah's chosen by Lot. There's thousands and thousands of priests. So you're going to get to do this probably one time in your life. And this is Zechariah's one time to burn incense in the holy place. So Luke tells us about these things that are chosen by Lot. And you, you know the Gospel of Luke is the first part of a, of a two-part collection. Acts is, is Luke part two. And in, in the first chapter of Acts, we have again them choosing a leader by casting lots. That's how they chose the replacement for Judas. So, so Luke is connecting this to the big story going forward and backward by mentioning uh, that a leader is chosen by Lot. Friends, I could go on and on, but this is an invitation for us to consider Scripture in a new way. Maybe an old way, but I want to remind you of an important way to read Scripture. As Luke is pulling all of these stories together, so that by the time, you know, Theophilus is getting to Acts chapter 10, he's real, and Acts chapter 10 is where the Holy Spirit comes to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles are brought into the chosen people of God. And, and by the time Theophilus gets there, he's realizing this isn't just a story, this is my story. That's hopefully what Theophilus will realize. And if we look at the whole of Scripture, starting in Genesis and going to Revelation, we have this collection of, of prayers and songs and histories and, and codes and laws and all the rest, this amazing collection that starts at the beginning of history and ends at the end of history. What does that mean? You're part of it. That means somehow, in some way, you are in the story. That this is not just a story, this is your story. This is not just the story of them over there, although it is. It's people long ago speaking different languages, practicing cultures that we don't know. But it's also your story here and now. Luke is inviting us to see the big story as our story. So God is working in the big story. Secondly, God is working through obedience and devotion. What does he say about Zechariah and Elizabeth? It's, it's striking given sort of New Testament understanding of people. They are blameless. They are devoted. They, are, they obey every law that they, can, that they know. They are trying to be faithful before God. These are people who are faithfully waiting for God to move. And, and so you would expect, you know, it, it, we're going to be surprised later, but you would expect that these are the people who would notice God moving because they're looking for him all the time. And when Gabriel shows up after, you know, peeling Zechariah off of the ground, he says, your prayer has been answered. Your prayer, your prayer has been heard. Now, what prayer is he praying? Which prayer? One commentator says, 
This is one answer to two prayers. Because what does the angel say to Zechariah? He says, your prayer has been heard. Elizabeth, your wife, will become pregnant. Is that what Zechariah is praying when he's burning incense in the temple? Well, I'll tell you what he's supposed to be praying. He's supposed to be praying, Lord, redeem your people Israel. Restore them. Come, bring, bring your glory back to this land. Draw your people back to faithfulness. Redeem your people. That's what he's supposed to be praying. But the angel says, your prayer has been heard. Your wife will bear a son. The angel knows the prayer that's deeper in in Zachariah's heart. My guess, based on his age, is that he stopped praying that other prayer a long time ago. That he prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed, and then time and age happened, and they realized, we're just not going to have a kid. You know, our, our shame is permanent. But the angel says, your prayer has been heard. Even an old prayer that you thought was long gone. Friends, the, the message here is that there's no prayer that is too small. God answers our prayers in a way that weaves together our individual stories and his big story. The more of your life that you bring into his light, that you just offer to him, the more you will see that your life is woven into what he's doing in the world, the more you'll see. Think about the prayer that Jesus teaches later in the Gospel of Luke. He teaches us to pray, let your kingdom come. That's a big prayer. That's, that's what Zechariah is supposed to be praying in the temple. Let your kingdom come. I mean, do the big thing that you're going to do. Let bring justice. Bring, you know, set the world right. Let your kingdom come. But then he also says, pray, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. The prayer goes from global down to you and your needs, your little things. Consider this. Are there things that you want that you feel strange asking God for? I'm guessing the answer is yes. I'm guessing there are things that you want. Maybe, maybe you'd like a, maybe you'd, your, your car is starting to get old and, and break down, and you're like, I'd, I'd really like a new car. I'm going to start saving for a new car, but it's going to be a huge financial commitment for you. You know, maybe it's something related to a home. Maybe, maybe you are longing for a luxurious vacation, but you feel weird asking God to hook you up with an all-inclusive in Costa Rica. You know, that's a, there's a lot of needs in the world right now, and that feels weird to ask God for that. Well, because we feel weird about that, we end up dividing our lives. We end up trying, asking God for the things that we think he's into. <laughs> and you know, saving up for the things that we'll just take care of on our own. Isn't that the case? And, and there's all sorts of things over here that we think, you know, well, I, this is just kind of life. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to try to do this. And I'll ask God for that stuff over there. Not realizing that if we bring all of this stuff before him, 
he might weave together our travel and our vehicles and our our homes and the clothes that we wear and all of this stuff, he might bring all of that into his big story. Friends, like, do we think that God's opposed to taking a week to rest in a beautiful place? If we do, then we probably should hold each other accountable to not be taking vacations anymore. But I, I don't think that's the case. I think instead we should hold each other accountable to, hey, bring all of those desires, all of it before him, because then God starts to fill every category of our lives. He starts to be involved in all of our longings. What would happen? What would happen if we habitually brought everything, like the big stuff, wars and famines and injustice on the one hand, and your Christmas wish list on the other to God? Maybe that situation with your family member, that conflict with your coworker, that, that runaround with the insurance company that you're going through. Maybe that's the window in which he's going to bring about redemption to many. There's a, there's a, great, uh, a great book about prayer by Paul Miller. And he tells a story of when he was a little kid, his family was poor. He actually... They lived in San Francisco, but he had to sleep like on the balcony because there wasn't space. His sisters had the bedroom and it would get really cold and he didn't have very good pajamas. So he started, he, and his family didn't have money to get pajamas at the time. So he starts praying as a little kid for pajamas. And the next week, of course, pajamas show up in the mail. Never received pajamas before or since. And for him, that was a turning point in his life where he went on to see God be involved in all sorts of ways in his life. Friends, what if those little things are a way that could open us up to how God could move? It's likely if you're longing to see God but, but not seeing him, that scripture and prayer are not your two favorite things. It's likely if, like, you feel distant from God, Mike up here saying, you know, look at the big story of Scripture and spend time in prayer is making you a little bummed out. I don't know. You, nobody's nodding, but I know you're nodding on the inside. But God actually is working in unexpected ways, too. He's working in our pain. Zechariah's prayers were both micro and macro. And his pain is micro and macro, too. On the big side, his pain is Israel's pain. You know, think of the, the opening words of the most popular Advent song, O come, O come, Emmanuel, ransom captive Israel that mourns in lowly exile here. There's a big pain that God's people are feeling. They are in pain. Think about what I said with Psalm 89. And 600 years have passed. But that's not the only pain Zechariah feels. That is one pain that he feels. The other one that he feels, of course, is that they have been unable to conceive. Now, today, the pain of infertility is devastating. It's overwhelming. It's crushing. I, I, I do, not, I, I do wanna not want to belittle it in any way. And we do not have a context 
for the added layers of shame that a priest and his wife would feel at not being able to conceive. You know what people think about her? Despite all of her good behavior, that she looks good on the outside, they think she's cursed. She did something. That's the only explanation for this. That was how they would have been understood by their peers. Their pain is deep. It is a cultural shame that they are living in. They have had a lump in their throat for so long, they think that's what normal life feels like. Most scholars think, like I said, that Luke spent time with both the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter. Both of these men had a strange way of interpreting life. Paul had learned the hard way that God's strength is made perfect in weakness. In fact, it's when Paul prayed that God would heal him of some physical situation. He doesn't really explain it. And God says no again and again. And finally, God says, my my strength is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. And Paul gets a deeper understanding of God's goodness. And if you read the letter that Peter wrote, 1 Peter, you, you will see Peter describing, you know, encouraging people to face their sufferings and their challenges with joy and then to always be ready to give a reason for the hope that they have within them. Like the, their mentality is that God will show off not in the good times, but in the bad times. These guys interpret life through the cross of Jesus Christ. If his crucifixion is God's victory, then the greatest opportunity to see God moving is not in our joys and comforts and victories. It is in our difficulties, our pains, our weaknesses, our failures, our conflicts. We can see God moving in those things. We just... They're an invitation to look. And finally, we can experience God working in the realm of our own hearts through our responses to him, even when our responses stink to him. Take Zechariah, for example. Uh, You know, that's the kind of the turning point of this story. Angel shows up. Zechariah's been praying. Like, of course, of course the angel would show up. You're such a good guy. You're praying. You're a priest. You're doing all the right stuff. You've been good all your life. And and Zechariah has all the knowledge. He knows all the stories. He knows the stories of Abraham. He knows, he knows the stories of, of Sarah. He knows the stories of, of Hannah. He knows all of these stories, Isaac and, and, uh, and Rachel and, and Jacob and Rebecca. And, and he knows all of these stories of God moving miraculously to bring about a child when a child was least expected. And his knowledge does nothing for him. Nothing. I'm, you know, I went to seminary. That doesn't give me any edge over you, okay? His knowledge doesn't help him out. He's like, me, me and Elizabeth, do you see us? You know, like, the, his knowledge isn't enough. A- and we can tell his response is bad because Gabriel gets ticked. Like, do you know who I am? I mean, you were scared a minute ago. Do you know who I am? History repeats itself. Almost all of those characters responded poorly when the news came to them. But unlike most of them, Zechariah gets a talking to for showing doubt. But again, 
He gives one prayer, and there are two answers. His prayer is, how can I be sure of these things? How can I be sure? And the two answers, one is, there's some consequences for questioning me. And the other is, I'll show you how you can be sure. Voice box. He does just like the sea witch in Little Mermaid. (laughs) Just. It's both a punishment and a grace. The spiritual expert is rendered dumb for long enough to listen and look around and start to develop an eye for God at work. Maybe, friends, just maybe, I know I need to hear this, the very thing that is standing in the way of you seeing God move is your voice explaining it in all sorts of other ways. Maybe we need to shut up for a while and just listen. That's not the only response in this story. Zechariah comes out and he's gesticulating. This is a great preacher word. This is what preachers do. You know, look over here. You know, that, that he's making big movements but not making any sound. And the people are like, what? Why is he wildly flailing? And they wonder what's going on. Here's what they're expecting. When the priest came out after uh, burning incense in the holy place, he was to give the ironic blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you. And they're like, Where's our blessing, man? Wait, he can't talk. Something's happened. And so they begin to notice. They begin to pay attention to what's going on in this old man, this old couple, and their life at home. If this priest has seen a vision in the holy place, perhaps God is about to do something for us. But there's also a good response at the end of this. You know, we start with the priest. We start with the guy, the holy man. And we end with the cursed woman. Cursed. The woman at home who's living in disgrace. When he is unable to speak, we hear her voice. The Lord is restoring the barren woman. He is bringing life back to his people Israel. It's a little story, and it's the big story. Friends, this is a hint of a theme. She has experienced disgrace, but the Lord showed her grace. In the Greek, it says, when I was overlooked, the Lord looked on me. When I was overlooked, the Lord noticed me. Here is the gospel, friends, in seed form. In this, the story that Luke is about to tell, God is looking on the overlooked. He's bringing good news to the poor, the lost, the left out, the left behind, the people who are forgotten by the bigger world. His vision, his gaze, his very vision will take on flesh in and through the person of Jesus. We'll see what God's looking at. We'll see who God is noticing. Just as life is coming to Elizabeth's dead and forgotten womb, so true life will come to this dead and forgotten world. 
That's the story that Zechariah prepares us for. So let's develop an eye to notice God at work. Because if Zechariah and Elizabeth's story is part of that big story, yours is too. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the ways that you pull us in. Lord, the fact that we are part of this group of people listening, worshiping together, you've made us part of the body of Christ. Lord, we're part of the big grand story that you're telling. And I pray, Lord, that you would free us to bring more and more of our lives, more of our hopes and fears and longings before you so that all of it can be folded in to your big story. In Jesus' name, amen.